You can have your Bibles handy. Uh, not going to any particular passage, very similar to last week. I had mentioned uh, that I wanted to do a little bit extra for Thanksgiving this year, and so I started last week with uh, a message that uh, looked into the idea of why Thanksgiving is important. And what we found is that one of the common attributes associated with those that reject the truth of the Bible and the design of God and His Word is the, an attitude of unthankfulness. And by this, we concluded that one of the reasons why Thanksgiving is important is because it draws us to a frame of reference, to a a, a framework of humility and to resist entitlement, to recognize that what we have is, is the extension of what we have been given. Thanksgiving takes our minds off of ourselves and puts them upon others. Thanksgiving reorients our focus to remember How much of all that we have been given is not of ourselves. So we know that Thanksgiving is important. We've set our minds and our hearts upon this idea that Thanksgiving is important. And not just the, we're not talking about the holiday here. We're talking about the principle, right? That the principle of Thanksgiving, the idea of being a thankful people is very important. And it is the most natural thing for the born again believer to be. Because we understand, and we understand full well, that the things that we have in heaven and on earth are are the extension of the, the gifts of a gracious God unto us. We understand full well the tremendous amount of mercy that we have been shown. And because we have been given the insight into these things through God's word, we above all people should see a time of thanksgiving as something that is worthy of our full investment. Now, as we step into the day this coming Thursday that we call Thanksgiving, and I mentioned already that as a general rule, our society has left Thanksgiving behind. Uh, We are not in a thankful society, for we are in a a, a society that does not fear God, that does not uh, regard God's word as true. And as such, we are in a society uh, that has more or less become a society of self. And of course, a society of self is not going to be a thankful society. It's going to be an entitled society. But as we are not that as we are those who are determined to live by the book. The question I want to answer this morning, one final question is, if we know why Thanksgiving matters, well, today let's contemplate what Thanksgiving looks like. And it's not going to be a complicated sermon this morning. This evening is not going to be a complicated sermon either. They're going to be fairly simple. They're going to be fairly foundational. But just because it's not complicated doesn't mean it's not important. Just because it's, it's not going to be something that is um, uh, mind-blowing in its, in, in its uh, originality does not mean it is not worth our great meditation and contemplation and directing our lives into it. And we're going to, de- to consider three concepts together to answer this question, what does Thanksgiving look like? First, we're going to talk about uh, declaration or praise. Then we're going to talk about humility. And then finally, we're going to talk about 
obedience. And as we think about this idea of, of declaration, which, will, which, which is this first concept, I originally wanted to use the word worship here. And I think worship would have been a fine word for it as well. But I'd actually like to think a little bit broader than even just the concept of, of what we might think of as worship. And let's look at a few psalms together, and, and I'll explain to you thus through that why, why it is that I use the word that I use. So in Psalm chapter 30, verse 4, the Bible says, Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Psalm 30 goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. So in Psalm 30, as we think of the idea of praise or of worship unto God, we get exactly what we would expect. Thanksgiving, not the holiday, but the concept, is connected very, very closely to praise, to song, to singing. We were even discussing that this morning in our Sunday school hour where we were thinking through 2 Chronicles 19 and 20 and Jehoshaphat going out to battle against the enemies of God. And as he did so, because of the promises of God, before the, the in front of, is what I mean by before, in front of the military, in front of the soldiers, in front of those that had the swords and the spears and the shields and the arrows, Jehoshaphat put his singers. And Jehoshaphat put his singers in front specifically because God had promised that the battle was already theirs, that they would not even have to fight the battle. And so what is Jehoshaphat to do? He doesn't really need those soldiers, so who does he put out in front of his military procession? He puts out the singers, the worshipers, those who are giving thanks unto their God. You know, the importance of music in the human heart cannot really be overstated. Music is fundamental to human life. It is built into the very fabric of our beings. And it is, of course, for this reason, among others, that the prudent Christian exercises caution with his music choices because music has the ability to affect body, mind, and spirit. And this is also the reason why music is fundamental to praise and to worship. Because music, properly written, properly played, music, properly done, has a unique capacity to lift our spirits unto God. But more than that, it's just about the perfect vehicle for declarations of thanksgiving and praise. So we read in Psalm 69, verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Again, in Psalm 92, verse 1, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. Notice the common connection between praising the Lord in song and giving thanks unto God. These two ideas fit together in perfect harmony. So certainly, thanksgiving looks like praise. It looks like worship in that way. But the idea of singing praises unto God's name is actually a subset of a greater idea of worship, a greater idea of praise. In, in the word I've chosen for that is declaration. This is well reflected in Psalm 107, where we read in verses 1 and 2, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And then to verse 22, Let them that sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works, excuse me, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. 
what we find is that our praise in song is only a subset of the declarations of our mouths to the wonderful works of God. And the way that Psalm 107 describes it is, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And this is what I'd like you to rest your minds on with this first point this morning. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You know, we are called to be a thankful people. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, the New Testament tells us. We are called to be a thankful people. And a thankful people will be a people who declare their thanksgiving to God. A a thankful people will be a people who tell others of their thankfulness. Thanksgiving to God manifests itself in the lives of God's people. And one of the ways it does so is in open and unashamed declaration of God's goodness, of God's works among men. And in a very real way, we might understand this best through this evening, uh, excuse me, through the evenings uh, that we do four times a year or so that we call Song and Testimony Night. On the fifth Sunday of every, uh, any month that has a fifth Sunday of the month, we have a Song and Testimony Night on that Sunday evening. And in that Sunday evening, we pair two things together. And the two things that we pair together are singing and testimonies. Why do we do that? We sing praises unto God's name and we share testimonies of God's goodness and his works in our lives. Why do we put them together? Well, the reason why we do so is because they are both expressions of the very same thing. Expressions in the heart of the followers of Christ. Expressions to God which flow out of the abundance of our thankfulness to God for who he is and for what he has done for us. You know, one of the things about us as Minnesotans is that we are not necessarily always the most publicly expressive people by nature. We uh, can, well, we appreciate our privacy. We uh, have thoughts, but oftentimes are happy to leave our thoughts in our heads and not necessarily have them coming out of our mouths. And yet, as we think through this tendency, run back through many hundreds of sermons that I have preached. If you were to listen online to many hundreds of sermons, you'd probably be more likely actually to hear a baby crying than you would to hear some sort of vocal amen, though that's not a big deal if you ever want to do that. (laughs) Praise the Lord. But we ought to take care that our propensities under a certain manner of expression do not hinder the important work of openly declaring God's works unto men. We know from scriptures that God has chosen his people to be the primary vehicle through which he declares his word to the world. We are his people. We are his representatives to this world. And if I may say it this way, if it is not we who are declaring God's wonderful works, if it is not we who are expressing God's goodness, if it is not we who is expressing the joys of redemption to the world that is around us, who will? We certainly can't rely on our institutions to do it. We can't expect that people are just going to hear it through uh, the media or, 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 or uh, by the grapevine. If people are going to hear of God's goodness, it's going to be through God's people. We know from scriptures that the assembling of God's people is essential specifically so that we might provoke one another unto love and good works. So let's talk about this assembly. Let's talk about we as Christians. 
who can get discouraged, who can uh, lose uh, sight of, of the direction that we're supposed to be going, who can um, uh, become a little bit despondent at times, who, who might not always be able to see clearly, to orient ourselves rightly to things. Who better to help us along that path than one another? And how better to do it than to declare God among one another? That we might provoke one another to love and good works. To these ends, as we come into this season of Thanksgiving, intended to be a day of focus within an entire year whereby we are a thankful people, as we're drawn, however, in this time to this virtue of thanks, thankfulness, as you think through it this week and as you're contemplating all of the elements of, of what Thanksgiving Day might look like and the plans and the food and whatever all of those things might be, let us draw ourselves not just into the day of thanksgiving and everything that it will ask of us, but let us be drawn unto the virtue of thankfulness. And in doing so, let us be determined that the redeemed of the Lord are going to say so. That we are going to be a people who are glad to declare God's wonderful works among the people. Notice how Paul connects these ideas in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15, the Bible says this. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, within Ephesians 5 here, verses 15 to 21, Paul walks through a chain of exhortations. He first says, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So the idea of walking circumspectly, walk carefully. The manner in which you, you walk through this life, you deport yourself in this life, should, ought to be one that is deliberate, ought to be one that is careful. Don't be a fool, but walk as one who is wise. Connecting this concept to redeeming the time because of the evil days within which we live. There are things to be done. There are people to be won. There is a testimony to be had. So we walk circumspectly. We live in a manner that is right before God and man because, because the days are evil. We live in these evil days. And then he says in his next command, be not unwise, but rather understand the will of the Lord. And so we walk circumspectly. We walk as wise. And as those who are are not unwise, we seek unto the will of the Lord. Well, what have we already said? In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So we understand what the will of the Lord is. We walk circumspectly in that will. And then he says here, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And it is, one, uh, it is this one, it is within this command that we find the operative verse for our topic today. Being filled with the Spirit. And that is the contrast there. The idea as we understand it in Ephesians 5 as it relates to that command is that you allow nothing uh, into your life, any mind-altering substance that would hinder the capacity of the, Spirit to God to, uh, of the Spirit of God to do His work. But the idea here, Paul is not dwelling on the idea of be not drunk in wine. He's actually, uh, with wine, he's actually using that as a contrast to direct our hearts to this idea of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That in the same way someone might consume a, 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 a substance that would actually override their natural capacity 
capacity and to reason, their natural capacity to feel and to think and to do all of those things that, that are, are natural and, and built into us, given to us by God in the human, in the human uh, uh, condition, in that same way that there might be an overriding idea, if you're going to be overridden by anything, let it be by the power of the Spirit of God in your life. Let it be the Spirit of God that is framing the way in which you think. Let it be the Spirit of God that is directing you in the manner in which you act. Let it not be some other uh, mind-altering substance, but let it rather be the Spirit of God. And that's the idea here of what he's saying. But notice how he says this. He says here, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then we find him elaborate on that idea. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. We go back to that idea of declaration, and here we see it through song. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, it says speaking to yourselves. You say, see, pastor, it says speaking to yourselves. So, so, so you do it for yourself. Well, that, that, that's not what the scriptures actually say here. Remember how the King James Version of our Bibles was translated. One of the tremendous blessings and advantages of the King James Version of the Bible is that it, it bridges the gap between the Hebrew and the Greek and the English in a way that other translations do not do. And one of the ways that the King James has chosen to do this is through the use of the yous, the yours, the these, and the thous. And they didn't use the these and the thous because they wanted the Bible to sound old-fashioned. They didn't even use the these and the thous specifically because that's what was used in the day there in 1611. They used the these and the thous as a means of of contrasting between uh, the second person singular pronoun in the Greek and the second person plural pronoun in the Greek. Or the second person singular pronoun in the Hebrew and the second person plural pronoun in the Hebrew. So every time in your King James Bible you see a thee, a thou, a thine, that is a second person singular pronoun. It means that the person being addressed is one person. I'm talking to my child and I say, you, child, go clean your room. I'm talking to one child. I would use thee if I were speaking in King James English. Thou, thee, go clean thy room because I'm speaking to one person. The you and the your and the ye is a second person plural pronoun underneath. You, plural. You, more than one. And so if I were talking to all of my children, I say, children, I want you to go clean your rooms. That would be the proper you there if I were speaking King James English. It would be speaking to all of them, to a a, a plurality of them. And notice it says here, speaking to yourselves in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. He's not saying here, speak to thyself. He's saying, speak to yourselves. Speak to one another is the idea there. And we have that insight because our King James translators used a different word for the second person plural pronoun and second person singular. Since we don't have that in the English language, they imposed it upon the English language so that they could be more accurate to the Greek text. And praise God for it, it makes our job a little easier when we're reading that text. We don't have to dig into the Greek to know what's being said there. So, we are speaking to ourselves, one to another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Not keeping it to ourselves, but speaking to one another. Singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. That does not mean that it doesn't come out of your lips. He already said that we're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What that means is that what comes out of us is an expression of what's already in us. 
From time to time when we're singing our hymns on a Sunday morning or on a Tuesday where I'm uh, perhaps more so when I lead music on Tuesdays, uh, since it's my tendency and my propensity, I'll say something to the effect of, let's make sure that the words that are coming out of your mouths as we're singing these songs are an actual genuine expression of what is in our hearts. This is another thing that worship does for us. What worship does is it sets a, a standard, an ideal. So that if I'm singing a song on a Sunday morning, and as I'm singing that song, I realize I'm kind of singing it in a little bit of hypocrisy. That the words that are coming out of my mouth are not actually genuine to the words, uh, to, to, to the, the thoughts that are actually in my heart. Well, in that the words that are coming out of my mouth are good words, what that tells me is there's something wrong with the heart, right? That I'm not singing and making melody in my heart to the Lord, that my heart is far from Him, even if my words are directing themselves toward Him. And that's an opportunity to get my heart right. And this is the idea as it connects to thanksgiving. Notice that when these declarations of praise are connected in the text to giving of thanks. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Giving thanks always. And so as he says, be filled with the Spirit. He says the first way to be filled with the Spirit is by singing and making melody they're singing one to another and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Singing to each other, with each other, and in a manner that is genuine from the heart, not just words of the lips. And then he says, also giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come together and we vocalize, we declare the Lord's person and the Lord's work. We declare who he is. We declare what he has done. Because Psalm 33 verse 1 tells us, praise is comely for the upright. And so we give thanks at all times and for all things. May I encourage you to make that the theme of your week? Giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thanksgiving is important. Because in a manner of speaking, it keeps the darkness at bay. Thanksgiving first looks like declarations to others of our God. But this verse also keys us into a second natural manifestation of thanksgiving. Another thing that thanksgiving looks like, thanksgiving looks like declarations unto the Lord. But notice what verse 21 here says. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. As Paul calls the church to walk circumspectly, to be wise and to be filled with the Spirit through vocal declarations of himself by praise unto God, singing to yourselves in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks, uh, singing make melody uh, in your heart unto the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God. He then finishes by saying, submit yourselves one to another, because a thankful heart will be a humble heart. And that's because of what we said last week. That the selfish heart is not predisposed to be thankful because his eyes are not on the blessings he has received. His eyes are on himself. He, his eyes are not on what he has. His eyes are on what he lacks. His eyes are not on what has the blessings he has been given. His eyes are on what he has done for himself. 
When one turns his eyes outward, when one understands just how small we are in the light of who God is and his greatness, when one sees the things that he has as provision, not just entitlements, the responsibilities he has as opportunities to be faithful, not burdens to be executed, when he's standing before, and he understands his standing is in God, uh, in Christ before God, not in himself. When I live in this thankfulness for who I am in Christ, what I have in this life, and what I have in the life to come, it stirs within me a perspective whereby I recognize that what I have is not but the extension of all that God has given to me in His grace. It stirs in me a smallness where I recognize how very big God is, how very good God is, how very gracious God is, how very merciful God is, how very holy He is, how very faithful He is. And I see myself in light of that, as James says, I look into the perfect law of liberty and I continue therein, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. And when I see that, when I look into that mirror, the mirror of God's word, and I see myself reflected back, and I see myself in light of who God is, I find myself to be very insufficient. And thank God, through Christ, this insufficiency does not stir me unto guilt and shame and fear, because in Christ I am redeemed. But what it ought to stir in me is humble thanksgiving. As believers, this is true, that as we look at our lives, it ought to stir within us humble thanksgiving. And not only of the benefits in this life, but also of the sufferings. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of his own sufferings, of a thorn in the flesh that he was dealing with. And in those verses, he says this, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear. Lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response then, most gladly therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul speaks here of a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that is. The book of Galatians, uh, uh, when, when Paul is speaking in the book of Galatians, he uh, mentions in passing uh, the love that the Galatian churches had had for him at one time, so much so that he says that you would give me your very eyes. And because of that statement, we perceive that maybe there was some sort of eye problem that Paul had, perhaps from being stoned several times. Maybe one of the stones hit, hit his head in such a manner that it caused him to not be able to see well or see clearly. We know that he very typically used an amanuensis when he would write his letters. Uh, it was a rare thing for him to write a letter with his own hand. And so we, we, we perceive that there might be some reasons why it was uh, that Paul might have had some sort of physical afflictions upon him that he would consider to be what he would 
call a thorn in the flesh. But as we think through this idea, Paul recognizing and notice how, how he says this. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure for the abundance of the revelations. He says that he recognized at least he recognizes now that because God had given him so many blessings in the spiritual, because he was this apostle to the Gentiles and he had been gifted in such ways, he said God gave him something to keep him humble. God gave him something to keep him in a place where he would be usable by God, where he would not be exalted in his own pride, in his own ideas. And he says, so, so God allowed a Satan, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he asked God three times to remove this. Whatever it was that Paul was dealing with, whatever this affliction was, he asked God three times, and three, if you know in the Hebrew mind, three was uh, uh, the, the, the highest emphasis. There are not superlatives in the Hebrew language, uh, like good, better, best. Uh, Hebrew, in Hebrew, superlatives came through repetition. So when the... the uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, when the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The idea of him being holy, holy, holy is holiest. Because that's the highest superlative. So whenever you're, you're reading a Hebrew author, if, they are, if they're using repetition, that repetition is um, important. That repetition is emphasis. Uh, because that's how they use superlatives. Now, Paul is writing in the Greek here, but he has a Hebrew mind. And in that he has the Hebrew mind, he has this idea, he besought the Lord thrice. That's the maximum. That, that is, uh, with, with every fiber of his being, he besought the Lord that this thorn in the flesh, that this thing that was afflicting him would be removed from him. And what was God's response? God's response was, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And this is where Paul gained the perspective that God wanted him to have as it related to this thorn in the flesh. This thorn in the flesh was suffering, but that doesn't mean it was a curse. This thorn in the flesh was a trial, but it was a trial unto his betterment. Not necessarily his betterment in the flesh, but his betterment in the spirit. It kept him humble. God had blessed him in so many ways that God needed to keep him humble. And this is the way that God chose to do it. And in that it was God's choice, Paul says, that means it's the right choice. And so what could Paul say then? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will glory in this thing, this thing that I hate, this thing that I don't want, this thing that is a weakness in my life, this thing that I perceive is holding me back. What God has actually told Paul is that that thing is the thing that is keeping him on the right path, lest he should be exalted above measure for the abundance of the revelation. Paul did not enjoy the suffering into which he was directed, but his heart was filled with thanksgiving that he might through that thing be what he needs to be for God. That if humility, we know that humility is necessary to redound to God's glory because the Bible tells us God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Paul said, if this is the thing that must keep me, that I must have to stay where I ought to be, humble, then I will glory in it. I will take pleasure in infirmity, in reproach, in necessity, meaning lacking, lacking those general necessities for life, in persecutions and in distresses, as long as they are for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
When I am in this place of weakness, when I am in this place of humility, God can be strong in me. Humility breeds thankfulness. Paul spent all that time asking God to remove this thing. And then when God said, no, it's here for a reason. My grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect. Then God said, or then Paul said, well, then Lord, thank you. Thank you for it. Because I know that it's there for me, not against me. Thanksgiving and humility are common bedfellows, Christian. Directing our hearts away from ourselves and unto God. So we read in Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. And I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. Obviously God speaking here. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house or he goats out of thy folds for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? What God is saying here is though he has commanded sacrifices, that's not because he needs these things. It's not because God's hungry that he demands that that his people would sacrifice a bull unto him. It is not because God is thirsty that he would demand the blood of that sacrifice. It is not that God needs us, that he asks things of us. He says in verse 14, offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the most high. God does not have us worship him because he needs our worship. God has us worship him because it is a means by which to keep us in a place of thanksgiving. In a place of humility. It is a way for us to lower ourselves before God and thus to offer unto him the praise that is due unto his name. And through that to gain the perspective by which I recognize that I need to be thankful. Because what I have is of God. God first draws the human heart here into humility, extolling his power, extolling his greatness above men. And then following those declarations of his greatness, he calls the hearer to offer thanksgiving. Verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. When at once I am thankful, then I will also find I'm well on the way to being humble. And if we come into this week dedicated to the idea of thanksgiving, with this mindset, if we ask the question, what should my thanksgiving look like? And the natural question as it relates to the holiday is, well, it should look like turkey, and it should look like family, and it should look like fill in the blank. But if you want to know what it ought to look like in principle, what what your thankfulness ought to look like. Well, it ought to look first like declaration, a willingness to tell people. It ought to look second like humility. Because when at once I recognize who I am in light of the great God, even in suffering, I find that God is justified. And then finally, it will also look like obedience. I was listening to somebody's testimony a few weeks ago 
and they were talking about having gotten saved and, and the things that they were that they were involved in. They were in, in various occult practices before they had gotten saved. And, and the person who was interviewing said, well, you know, were you able to continue doing these certain things while you were uh, you know, a believer? You were being a believer and you were in these occult practices. And, and the person said, yeah, at first I was trying to merge those things. But then as I read the word of God, I realized that, that, that it didn't work that way, that it can't work that way. And, and the thing that they said that really stood out to me is they said, how could I be... How could I have so little gratitude that I would continue in these things? It sounds to me so ungra- uh, 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 ungrateful to continue in these things after what Christ has done for me. And that idea, that idea of gratitude, that because of what God has done for me, how can I but show him my gratitude? And how is it that we show God our gratitude. You know, salvation is by grace through faith alone. There are no strings attached. God did not send Jesus to die on the cross and then say, in order to be saved, you have to do, 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 do. You had better do this, do that, do that, or you're out. I expect this. I expect to see that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There is no merit in grace. If I have merit by which I can earn my way to God, then it's certainly not grace. And we see that from the Bible to be true. But there is something else to be true that is true as well. We read already in Ephesians 5 that it was singing and making melody in our hearts, not just our lips, that is this idea of praise unto God. The Bible is filled with reminders that when it comes to worship, when it comes to praise, when it comes to these things, what we say and do is only as good as the heart of obedience that undergirds it. We saw that already in Psalm 50. The idea of God saying, you know, I don't really need the cattle. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't really need your sacrifices. I don't really need the blood of bulls and of goats. And this is a theme that we find very commonly throughout the Old Testament prophets. That, that the nation of Israel, they had come to a point where they had so ritualized the ideas of of worshiping God. It had become so just religiously ingrained that they did all of the things they were supposed to do. They did their sacrifices and, and, and they, they did their offerings and they did all of those things, but their hearts were very far from God. And one of the most poignant passages to this point in the scriptures is in Micah chapter 6. Many of you probably know it. In Micah 6, 6 through 8, the Bible says this. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What is it that God wants from me? What is it that will show God his worth? If I see that there's a God in the heavens and he's all powerful and he has condescended to interact with me and to reveal himself to me and I want to show him some measure of requital, some measure of gratitude for that thing, what is it that I should do? Should I, should I, do thousands, should I, should I burn up thousands of rams? Should I, should I pour out ten thousands of rivers of oil? Should I, should I give my firstborn for my transgression? Is that what I need to do? in order to show God his worth. Verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, 
to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Interesting. God had commanded to the nation of Israel the burnt offerings, the rams, the oil. He had even commanded the setting aside of the firstborn unto him, not, not sacrificing him, but the idea of the, of, of the setting aside of the firstborn. Every firstborn child had to be redeemed if they did not want to give him to the, to, to the service of the temple. But all of this external worship is little more than static if underneath is not a heart of obedience unto God, Christian. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. Jesus would say the same thing to the religious Jews of his day. Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And he says, these ought ye to have done. You ought to have tithed of the, of the mint and the anise and the cumin. That's a good thing. That, that, that's what the law asks of you. But you should not be doing that at the expense of the weightier matters of the law not to have left the others undone. It's a fine and a good thing for us to worship the Lord in word. It's a fine and a good thing for us that we declare these praises unto his name. It's a right thing that we align ourselves with the symbols and traditions of homage unto our God. But the best way to show God his worth if I truly want to express my thankfulness unto God for his wonderful works, both in me and around me, I can do no better than to obey what he has asked of me. You want to talk about gratitude? That's gratitude. Thankfulness? That's thankfulness. If my children want to show me that they appreciate me, the best way they can do it is to obey me. My children want to tell me that, they, that they're thankful that I raised them and took care of them. The best way they can do it is by listening to my wisdom. Obedience is gratitude. Sanctification is gratitude. If God has done so much for me, it is but a small thing that I should give him my heart. It is my reasonable service that I might present my body a living sacrifice unto him, holy and acceptable. It is the least I can do to love God back with all the love that he has shown to me. And this is, if I may put it this way, this is the pinnacle of the virtue of thankfulness. So that as we come into this week, which is a very important week, it's not for society anymore except, you know, for Black Friday, I guess that's important to a lot of people. But as far as Thanksgiving is concerned, society's not, it's not important to them, but it ought to be to us. As we come into this, as society is diverting hearts from gratitude to entitlement, from looking outward to looking inward, don't allow such thing to take place in your heart. Live in thanksgiving this week. What does it look like? Well, it looks like declaration. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let's declare God's wondrous works among the people. One to another. We'll do it in song and hymn and spiritual song. We've done it this morning. We'll do it this evening. We'll do it on Tuesday night. 
But let's make sure that we are vocalizing our thanksgiving to God. Let's do it through humility. Maybe you're going through hard times right now. Maybe in one sense, you look at this year, you look at the times that we're in, and you say, you know what, I don't feel like there's a whole lot to be thankful for. Maybe you look at the political climate and you say, I'm not very thankful. Maybe your health is struggling right now and you say, I'm just not very thankful. Maybe your family's having a hard time. Maybe there's financial woes. Maybe there's uh, plans that you had set in place that have now been diverted. But you know, there's still a God in the heavens. And if the reason why things are going the way they're going is because of the choices you've made, and that's obvious, and the Spirit of God is convicting your heart, well, there's confession and repentance for that. Get it right. But maybe, just maybe, the things that you're going through have a bigger, a bigger plan, a bigger reason. So that when the scriptures say, giving thanks unto God for all things, is there a way that you can take even those things in your life that maybe aren't going the way you planned, that aren't going quite the way you were hoping, and you can say, you know what, maybe there's something bigger going on here. God, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to live out in my life faith. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, for, for the in, in inspiring through this, to check my heart, to check my motives, to seek unto you. You've drawn me closer to you. I've spent more time in prayer, more time in Bible reading, trying to figure out what's going on. Thank you for drawing me nearer to yourself. A little bit of humility. And then finally, what does Thanksgiving look like? Obedience. Gratitude. As you think back upon the things that you have, not the things you don't, the things you have, the circumstances you're in, the family you've been given, the opportunities you've had, the provision you enjoy, the health you, you've enjoyed. As you think upon all of these things, and we're going to talk about a lot of those tonight. Tonight's going to be more of just like a, a contemplation sermon. The best way that you can show God his gratitude or your gratitude for what he has done is in this very thing. Obedience. If you recognize how much he's done for you, show him you appreciate it in the manner in which you live your life. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.